morning, church. Uh, it is good to see you here. Those of you who are here, those of you who are home, I can't see you, but you can see me. And uh, we want to welcome you. Uh, my name is Steve Cunningham. I'm the lead pastor here at Wellhouse, uh, and we're excited to be here. Uh, it struck me this morning as I got up and was contemplating talking today that the God of all creation knew when I would live and how I would live. And so he orchestrated various things, including the preservation of a letter that was written 2,000 years ago to a group of believers about this size and number from a guy who had been in and out of prison, encouraging them to walk and their faith. And that letter would survive over the course of time to be able to be distributed and then recopied in a language that I could live and could interpret and that I could live it out and it would encourage my life. Have you ever, ever thought about things like that? I mean, you're, maybe you're like, Steve, you're crazy. Um, and you might be right. But I think, man, how big is the God we serve. I wonder if you ever just kind of just let yourself sit in that for a minute, because I don't know about you, but sometimes the problems that kind of come up in my life seem so big. They seem so insurmountable. They seem so looming overhead, right? And, and if, you're, if you're anything like me, over the course of the week, as kind of Chris was talking about, you know, it's like one problem after the other. You know, the car goes out, then you come home and the dishwasher's not working, right? And the kids are behind in homework and, and all of a sudden you feel the mounting stress and now I got to go out and mow and man, is it really hot out here? And boy, was it ever hot out there this week. And all these things start to kind of pile up and it feels so big. And I'm here to let you know that our God is so much bigger. To allow a letter to a small church in Galatia to survive for more than 2,000 years to be placed in your hand that would encourage you in your faith walk is just a small testament to what God can do. Over the last couple of weeks together, we've been looking through the book of Galatians written by a guy named Paul to a church in Galatia. This, this newly found group of believers has come together and they're diverse in nature. Some of them come from, from uh, Judaism. They have a, this longstanding relationship uh, with, with God and others of them. They're Gentiles. They're, they're new to this understanding of God and who it is. And of course, whenever you put diverse people together uh, and you try to get them to work together. Sometimes, and hear me out, there's things that, that have to be ironed out along the way. And you figured that if you've been married or you have kids, you figured that out, right? Sometimes along the way, you got to learn how to iron some things out. And so Paul writes to them and he encourages them on some things that they need to iron out together. And one of those is the foundation or the basis of our relationship with God. Paul talks about in chapter one that, that there's this group of people who, who come together and they're saying, listen, Jesus is good, he's great, he's even the son of God, but he's not enough. 
And so Gentile believers, those of you who are new coming to this God thing, we've been doing this a long time. Listen to us. There's some stuff that you need to do if you really, really want to be right with God. And Paul reminds him that the gospel is the gospel because it doesn't depend on you. It's not up to you. It's up to God and everything he's done before. And so he writes them and he reminds them of that in Galatians chapter one. And Galatians chapter two, we talked about this idea that, that Paul winds up having to confront some people, right? That, that as, as he sees these two groups of people coming together, that he recognizes there's, there's uh, not unity. There's not unity because they want uniformity. They want everybody to think alike and act alike and behave alike and look alike. And so that's what they're pushing for. Because wouldn't the world be a whole lot easier if everybody believed just like you? And so that's what they were hoping to do. But Paul has to remind them that the gospel is a gospel of unity, not uniformity. He's going to write to the church in Corinth later about this as he talks about that the body of Christ is like a body. And there are eyes and there are ears and there are feet. There's all kinds of different parts. But those parts work together in unison for a greater purpose. And therefore, unity doesn't look like uniformity. Unity looks like appreciating diversity. This is huge. Chapter 3 in Galatians, starting in verse 1. Paul has his strongest words, and this is how it starts. You foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified, meaning he died. He was, the, he was the sacrificial lamb. He took it all. There was nothing else that needed to be done. He did it. So I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Did you, did you receive the Spirit by all the good things you did, by, by the things you kept up with, by, by all your good deeds, or by believing what you heard about Jesus? Are you so foolish that after beginning by the means of the Spirit, you're now trying to finish by the means of the flesh? Or you're trying to finish by, by, by the things that you can do or accomplish on your own. By, by hearing this story about Jesus, by, by seeing all the things that he did for you, it was good enough for it, to, for it to start off with. But somehow along the way, it seems like it's not enough for you. And so what are you doing? Who, who's gotten in your head and, and fooled you or deceived you along the way? And Paul has to really sternly correct this group of believers in Galatia. Because they've forsaken what he believes is the gospel message for acts of obedience. And this is the problem with the law. We, we oftentimes call this legalism. And in legalism, the, the whole idea of, of legalism is really to adhere to the law to the very best you possibly can. 
Now, some of you, your personalities are built that way, right? This is, this is my mother. If, if the speed limit is 35, she is going to go 35, right? Not 36, not 37 and a half. She's going to do it, right? And if, if there's a limit on a product, she's going to stick to the limit. She's going to read all of the warning labels and all the directions, and she's going to follow those things. And she gave birth to a kid, me, and I don't follow any of those things, <laughs> Those are just mere suggestions, right? Those are things if you want to try to do, that's great. And if you, if you don't really feel like it, that's fine too, right? But some of our personalities are kind of bent towards that. But I think we all, in some ways, struggle in this area of legalism. That we see a law and we try to adhere to it. And I think two different things come out of legalism that I have seen over the course of time. And listen, you may be able to think through this a little better than I am. And you could probably put more categories on this than I can. But here's two areas that I think I see when it comes to what uh, legalism uh, produces. The first one is this, self-deception. Self-deception. And here's how legalism produces self-deception is that we think we're better than we actually are. We think we're better than we actually are. And this is the problem that Jesus has with the group of Judaizers who's going around and saying, listen, you're not really right with God until you do this and you do this and you do this. But then when you realize that Jesus had this group of people around and he says, listen, you, you count all of these things, but you neglect all the weightier matters. You don't treat people right. You don't forgive people. You don't love people well. You hold to the parts of the law that are the most comfortable for you. And then you turn a blind eye to the rest. Legalism oftentimes produces in us a self-deception that we are better than what we think we are because it's always easy to look around and see somebody who's worse than you. Isn't it true? You begin to kind of look around. You're like, well, maybe I need to work on some things in my life. And then you see somebody who's kind of, maybe they have a little bit more to work on. You're like, well, maybe I'm not so bad after all. The second thing that I think legalism produces is self-sabotage. Now, this is the opposite end of the spectrum. So this happens a lot of times with people who wind up leaving the church. And they look at the rules and they see the rules and they see people who seem to keep the rules really well. And it's like, man, those people are perfect. And I keep screwing up all the time. So there's no way that I'm going to be able to keep the rules as well as they keep the rules. So I'm just not going to try. You met somebody like that before? They don't like the rules of the game, so they quit playing the game. And for Paul, this is, this is the problem with hinging the gospel on what we can do, because there's no great outcome. Either you're way better than what you think you are, or you look around and say, I can never measure up, so I quit. And Paul says, this is not the gospel. In fact, here's what I believe about a faith where you have to hang on enough, you have to do enough, you have to somehow muster through enough to make it work, 
is that a white-knuckled faith will either leave you bitter or betrayed, but it will not leave you saved. A white-knuckled faith will either leave you bitter. It'll leave you looking around feeling like you don't measure up, that you're never good enough, that there's somebody always who is better than you. They've got more answers than you. They've got more of life figured out than you. And so you look around and you're just bitter by it all. You look around at the legalism system and you're bitter by it. And you've known people who've walked that road before that they've looked at church before and they say, you know, I, I, if that's what it's about, how well you can do this, I already know I can't do it well, so I quit. Or it leaves you betrayed. Thinking that it's all about how well you can play the game. And here's the thing. God doesn't play the game. He gave you a gift and the gift is his son. Listen, I, I believe that this kind of legalistic thinking sometimes is the framework for our childhood faith. It, and, and in fact, most of the time, I think as we grow up, we kind of learn things in a legalistic law kind of way right? We, we operate our household in this system, and maybe you do too, where we talk to our kids about, all right, now it's time to clean your room. If you don't clean your room, well, then you're going to be grounded. Or if you don't clean your room, listen, there's, there's not going to be dessert tonight. Or if you, if you wind up not doing the chore, then listen, there's, no, there's not going to be all like electronic time tonight. And it's based on the merit of if you do good, good things will happen. And if you do bad, bad things will happen. And we learn these things. And somehow those ideas wind up seeping into our faith. Thinking that the more good that we do, the more God must love us. And when we make a mistake, man, we really have to make up for that. That God must love us less or think less of us. And we outgrow the foundations of our childhood faith quickly. Chris and I were talking about this earlier this week and he had kind of brought up the scenario of, of like when he was young, you know, he would, he, his parents would say, all right, you know, as a part of your work, you know, you're going to go out and mow and that's, that's your chore. If you don't do your chore, you're going to, you're going to, there's going to be a punishment involved. But eventually this idea kind of transformed to, to, to chore, uh, this chore they had to do versus a reward system. And now you go out and you mow the yard and now you get rewarded for it. You know, you'd make 10 bucks if you go out and mow the yard. And so there's, there's this kind of give and take back and forth. But eventually, eventually, and those of you who have gotten to this age, you realize this. As you show up on your parents' door and you realize that there's certain things that they can't do for themselves anymore. It's no longer, hey, listen, mom and dad, you know what I'll do? I, I, I'll help you. I, I see there's some areas, but if you give me enough money, I might be able to, you don't do that anymore, do you? Because you've outgrown uh, grown 
the foundations of your childhood relationship, the point where something else drives you. This is huge. Because many people are unsure. They're not sure what to do with God once they outgrow their childhood framework of faith. And for most of us, this idea of how God works and how faith works is based on this merit system of I do good, God loves me, I do bad, God hates me. And I gotta follow the law to the letter of the law and if I don't, I'm doomed. And we ask questions like what happens if you know, on the way to be baptized, I slip and I fall? And I, what, where do I fall with God? Or what happens if I walk through a place and, and I wind up getting divorced? What, what happens to me next? Am I doomed forever for hell? Or what happens in life if, if I start to raise my kids and, and one of them kind of goes off in different directions? Does that mean I'm a failure as a parent? And we wrestle with various degrees of legalism because sometimes, we're not sure what to do with God when we outgrow the childhood framework of our faith. And Paul is here to help us understand that there's something deeper than this. And this is how he points it out in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 6. Now, this is going to get dry for a minute, but just hang with me. I promise I'm going to help catch you up. Galatians 3, 6 says this, So Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is a quote from the Old Testament. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, and all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under the curse, as it's written, cursed is everyone who doesn't continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous live by faith. For the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, curses everyone who's hung on a pole. And he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might become to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that the faith we might receive uh, is the promise of the Spirit. There's a lot going on in these verses. But to understand, I think, really quickly what's happening here is that Paul is tying together something that had been a longstanding uh, understanding for them. They, they go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1, where, where God shows up on the scene, and Ab Abram is there. He's not even Abraham yet. And he calls him out, and he says, listen, listen, listen. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And normally when we talk about covenants, we talk about two different parties or two different people. And one person says, oh, listen, here's all the things I'm going to do and the expectations that come with it. And the other person says, all right, here's all the things I'm going to do and the expectations that come with it. And then they make the agreement agreement. But this covenant is different. And it's different in the way that it's completely one-sided. Abraham never says anything. 
He never makes any agreement. It's all on God. And God says, listen, I choose you. And through you, I'm going to bless everyone. All people are going to be blessed through you. And whoever curses you is going to be cursed. And I'm going to make your name great. And you'll be a blessing. And Paul writes and he says, listen, what was the covenant based on for Abraham? What did Abraham have to do? Well, he had to trust God. And that was it. God did the rest of the work. So he says, listen, you know how it was with Abraham where it was like, all right, God's got all the work to do. You just trust him. Well, that's, that's you. And if you're willing to accept this gospel, it is, it is not by merit. It is not by legalism. It's not by work. There's nothing you can do that will make God love you more or love you less if you trust in him. And this is a beautiful thing. The other covenant oftentimes that we go back to, the one that we focus on a whole lot more is the Mosaic covenant. Now this covenant looks a whole lot more like this, this transactional piece. God, God enters this relationship with Moses and the people as he, he's walking them through and it looks a lot more like you'll get blessing and prosperity and protection for your obedience to me. And throughout the Old Testament, we see time and time and time again where the nation of Israel goes against what God wants them to do and all of a sudden they lose prosperity or they lose blessing or they lose protection and then God comes in again and saves the day. And this happens over and 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 over again. And do you know why I think we still struggle with legalism today? It's because I see more of that pattern than the first pattern. I think I see more of this struggle over and over and over where we rebel against God and walk away and lose this feeling, this closeness with God. And then he has to pursue us again and we fall away and pursue us again. And God says, no, 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 no. That's not the way I designed it to be. I designed a closeness I designed this thing that Jesus came to fulfill. In fact, in verse 19, he says this, why then was the law given at all? Why then was there this mosaic law where it pointed out all the things you had to do and we couldn't keep with it anyway and we kept feeling like a failure and repeating the same process over and over again? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, Jesus, who came to the, uh, to the promise referred, had, had come. The law was given through angels and trusted to a mediator. And a mediator, however, implies that there's more than one party. But God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promise of God? Is it standing in the way of it? Does the promise of God saying, listen, I, I, you don't have to do anything. You just trust me. Paul says, absolutely not. For the law been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly not have to come by the law. 
But the scripture has locked everything up under the control of sin so that that what was promised being given through faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who will believe. Before um, the coming of this faith, we were held in the custody of the law, locked up until faith was to come, would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come and we're no longer in guardianship. This idea that Jesus is the fulfillment of both covenants. This is essentially what this passage is saying that Paul is pointing out. He's saying, listen, what was the point of, of, of the Abraham covenant? What was the point of the Mosaic covenant? This, this idea that God puts these things out of here. These null and void, are they still in place or what's going on? And Paul says, listen, Jesus fulfills them both. When he says, listen, all people will be blessed through you, that's exactly what Jesus came to do. That's the fulfillment of it. And through Jesus, we find grace for all. And through Jesus, we find the perfect sacrifice, the one who never messed up, the one who got it all right. We'll never see that again. And Jesus fulfills them both. In fact, Jesus tells us this in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, I haven't come to abolish anything. I've come to fulfill it. And he reminds his disciples of this. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20, he says, listen, a new covenant I give you. That he comes to, to usher in something completely different. That's a fulfillment of this Abraham covenant. He's the blessing to all people. And he's the perfect rule keeper. And he's a spotless sacrifice. And this is Jesus. See, when we think about freedom, we oftentimes don't think about this captivity that Paul points out in the law. That we're held captive, this idea that, man, if I just do this better, if I just white knuckle this better, it's going to get better. And Paul says, true freedom is found in the identity of Christ. Band, if you'll come on up to the stage as we kind of close out our thought. Paul's not done. He wants to conclude this thought. So in verse chapter 26, this is what he says. It's beautiful, so just let it sink in. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed, which means you're heirs according to the promise. Paul says this, if you belong to Christ... And this is an interesting phrasing. Did you know that there's really only one way that you can actually label something? Imagine this for a moment. I break into your house. 
And in breaking into your house, I, I wind up changing all of the, the bedrooms. It's no longer, you know, your bedroom. Now this is going to be an office. And I write these things on the door. Now this bedroom isn't going to be for this person anymore. It's going to be Steve's study area. And now, now the kitchen is no longer called the kitchen, right? This is Steve's culinary school where you'll be learning how to make pastries that make me happy. And, and I'm going to start labeling all kinds of other things. This is no longer a ladle. We're going to call it something completely different, right? And I start going through and I relabel everything in your house. And you laugh because that's completely ridiculous because we understand that the only person who gets to label things is the owner. What legalism does is places the ownership on you. It makes you the owner of it. So you feel the weight of every decision you feel the weight of every mistake. You, you feel the weight of, of heartbreak and heartache and, and all the things that come along with life. And Paul reaches out and he says, no, 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 no. There's a different owner here. You can either be owned by legalism, be the, he says, the guardian of it. That, that it owns you, that, it, that, it, that you are submitted to it. Or... You belong to Christ. And he says, if you belong to Christ, then you're sons and daughters. And here's the wonderful thing. There's the wonderful thing about being sons and daughters. There is nothing in the world that my kids could ever do that would make me love them less. Nothing. There might be times I'm disappointed and there might be times where I feel like, man, I wish that they would have made a different decision, but I would walk through hell and back for them. And if that's how I love my kids, I know that God loves us more. And he gives you a different label. And Paul even says, listen, in Christ, there's not Jew or Gentile. There's not somebody who has a longer standing relationship and somebody has a shorter standing relationship. And God says, wow, wow, look at this one over here. And well, this one has a little bit more to go. He says, no, 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 there's no more labels like that. And there's no longer slave and free. There's, there's not this, this, uh, this identity that comes on the outside that says, wow, this person's impressive. And boy, this person's not so impressive over here. He says, no, 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 in Christ, that doesn't exist. And he says, no, 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 there's not this male, uh, you know, wow, such authority. And wow, you can really drive home the point. Listen, you better submit over here. You're not really worth a whole lot. He says, no, 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 in Christ, that doesn't exist. In Christ, listen, in Christ, the sons and daughters, and you matter. So don't live in legalism anymore. The beautiful thing is that Christ demonstrates this by giving his whole life. It's amazing. And he calls us to the table as sons and daughters in the sacrifice where he says, listen, I gave my very best to show you how much I love you. And all you have to do is trust me. And so taking a step at the table is just taking a step towards trust. As we commune together, that's exactly what we do. We acknowledge what God has done and continues to do in our broken lives. Recognizing that it's not 
on the weight of our shoulders that brings us salvation, but it's something that was done for us so long ago. And God's not done transforming us. But even in the middle of that, he calls you home. We're gonna pray and then we'll be dismissed to the tables. God, we, man, we're so thankful for you. We're so thankful that we have this letter that was preserved for over 2,000 years, written to a small group of people who were just trying to figure it out. And they were struggling along the way. And they had hurts and they had bad habits and they had hangups and they had flaws and they had sin. And through all of that, you still counted them in. Not because of them, but because of who you are. And Father, you do it again. You do it right here, right now with this group of people. There were not better believers or worse believers. We're not male or female. We're, we're not man the haves and the haves not, but we're sons and daughters called by our Father who loves us and would literally go to hell and back for us. And that's the reminder. So God, as we approach the table today, just help us, help us believe. And Father, like, like the Father in the Bible who says, I believe, help my unbelief. If that's where we are today, God, would you help us in our unbelief? Our unbelief that you're enough? Our unbelief that we can't do this life? our unbelief that you'd never choose us and help us reconcile that today through remembering what you gave up for us. Father, it's in your magnificent, holy, majestic, worthy, 